turn with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 17, reading verses 6 through 23. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree, where they made, and they made offerings on all the high places, and the nations, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers, And the warnings that he gave them, they went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Well, this morning we are in one of the most tragic uh, moments in the story. As we continue our series through uh, the history of redemption, Uh, we're calling this sermon series, The History of Redemption, accompanied by the the reading plan at BibleTogether.com and the reflections that can be found there as we work our way through the story, tracing God's revelation of his purpose. God is revealing something, and what he's revealing is his purpose. His purpose is specifically to redeem a people for himself from out, from among rebellious creation. This is what we've been seeing along the way, right? And we see it Again today, though in one of the most tragic moments of movement in this history, we've moved, as we've looked at the story, from God's perfections in uh, the being revealed in creation. God made all things, and he made them good. We've moved from God's perfection revealed in creation to the rebellion of Adam and Eve, revealing the Uh, ourselves to be rebels against the one true God. And right at the beginning, a pattern emerges, a pattern that we've seen played out a number of times. We'll see it uh, going forward, that God acts with unilateral generosity and goodness. God acts, and it's good. He reveals his purpose and his design, and his purpose and his design is accompanied by commandments and instructions for the people that they might know his generosity and his goodness in 
their lives. But we've seen also that his people reject the way of the Lord. Each time as God walks in generosity and goodness and reveals his good and rightly ordered way, the people reject the way of the Lord. They seek the pleasures of creation, but they do so apart from the creator. And this is a disordering of creation. God brings down, therefore, a righteous judgment upon rebellion in the pattern continues right in the midst of his judgments as he's bringing down his righteous, his good, his rightly ordered judgment on rebellion in his perfect world against the the rebellion that's taking place there. Right in the middle of that, God also reveals his plan for redemption. So right in the middle of judgment, God is actually making known something sweet, something generous, something gracious, not all will be lost. Out from the midst of the rebellion that the Lord is, uh, of the people, God is revealing a rescue plan, a plan to rescue a people for himself. And specifically, hear this, that this people who are being rescued are being rescued as a people for worship. So we're not just being rescued so that we can, you know, enjoy creation apart from God. No, we're being rescued so that we might worship the Lord and live according to the revealed pattern of his way in the world. This will be that that these people would be his people and he would be their God. In this morning's passage, the Lord lays out his argument for exile. An argument, a revelation, that his exile of a rebellious people is right. And it's good. The Lord, by his spirit, inspires these words to explain his work in history, specifically his judgment on Israel. And let me suggest to you the fact that we have this word recorded for us, and we don't just have destruction and exile and no word. The fact that we have this word itself is grace to us. So let us pray to the God of grace. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have made known to us truth and reality, that you look sin and rebellion in its face and you call it the evil that it is, even if it's found in our own hearts, this is grace to us. Lord, I thank you for your revelation. I thank you for your generosity in creation. I thank you for your righteousness in judgment. And I thank you for the hope of redemption. I pray that all of this would be made known to us today and that we would believe it, that we'd receive it with faith, the the revelation of this pattern in history that finds its fulfillment and culmination in Jesus Christ. And that you would affirm to it this reality by your spirit so that we would be not only informed, but we would be changed. And we would be brought into your household as, as worshipers of your great name and live in light and in the sight of your goodness. Thank you, Lord. We ask these things boldly because we know that you are able in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, what happened? Well, we're told what happened right away in verse six of our passage this morning. I do hope you have your Bibles open with me. We'll walk our way through much of this lengthy passage. What happened? Verse six, in the ninth year of Hosea, Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in these variety of places that they would be dispersed. Now, let's remember that the one people of God had split into two kingdoms after the death of King Solomon, who was the son of David. The kingdom of the south was under King Rehoboam, and that's known as the kingdom of Judah, or with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And it included Jerusalem. That's an important note. It's not just a a footnote of a city that happened to be in a kingdom. It's an important note because that's where the temple is established and where the Lord had made his name known. And that southern kingdom would be known by the name Judah. And then we have the kingdom of the north that splits off from the kingdom of Judah. And that kingdom of the north is under King Jeroboam. And it includes the remaining 10 tribes of Israel, not Judah and Benjamin. And it would be called by the name Israel. So don't be confused. Not every time that the scriptures make reference to Israel is it speaking of the whole of the people of God. In this season, particularly in the books of 
First and Second Kings and the Chronicles, it's speaking most often of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And they were in this verse, they are called to account. And we have the account of their exile, the exile of the people of Israel from their kingdom, the northern lands. And they're not only exiled and carried away, the tragedy of this goes further. They are intentionally dispersed within the Assyrian Empire, dispersed to various cities and regions with the intention that they would be assimilated into the cities of the Assyrian kingdom. So the Assyrians were not just exiling them. They were eliminating them as a people, as a culture, as Israel. And this is the argument that the Lord makes for the exile of the kingdom of Israel. God's argument laid out for us in 2 Kings chapter 17. The first bit of the argument is this. They are exiled because the people sinned. They're exiled because the people sinned. We see that right away, verse seven. Look at it with me. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And that's why it occurred, because they'd sinned. Before we consider the sin of the people, I want to use the fact that, I want us to see the fact that the Lord condemns the people. That's actually an important note. He condemns the people. The, 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 the exile comes because of the sin of the people, even though it's the king and the leader of the people who led them in error. Well, let's consider the king and the people. If you look at verse 21, we get a glimpse at how the king and the leaders of the people had led them in error. Verse 21, when he, as the Lord, had torn Israel from the house of David, they, that is the people, made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. Back in verse 16, we have information about that sin. It says that they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord, their God, and made for themselves metal images of two calves and made Asherah and worshiped the host of heaven and served Baal. Well, Jeroboam had led them in the establishment of those two metal calves, and he established them in Bethel, and he established them in Dan. Jeroboam is clearly leading the people in their idolatry. What's the nature of their idolatry? It says that they committed a great sin. That sin, Jerusalem, is where the temple is. But the problem you can see right away for Jeroboam is the temple is in the southern kingdom. And so the Lord had promised to to be in the presence of the people and to be worshipped in his temple. But the people of the northern kingdom can't go venturing back into the southern kingdom. Jeroboam's looking at that and he's like, I can't maintain my kingdom if I have the people worshiping in another kingdom. So Jeroboam fashioned an entire alternative method of worship. It's one of the main points for us in this passage this morning. Jeroboam fashions an entire alternative method of worship. He sets up idols in the form of calves, Bethel and Dan, and he set up an alternative to the priesthood of the Levites that serve in the temple and were supposed to serve among the people. And all of this, it's not merely a violation It's a rebellious rejection of the way of the Lord. And it's not just that. It's a rebellious rejection of the way of the Lord in order to establish a kingdom for himself. You see, this people are to be the Lord's people and the Lord is to be their God. And Jeroboam's like, no, they're my people and I will establish an alternative way of worship so that I can keep them for myself. As we saw last week, Jeroboam set the pace for idolatry in Israel, and the kings and the dynasties that followed continued with them. We saw last week Ahab and his wife Jezebel and the idolatry that sort of rises to its zenith with Ahab and Jezebel, with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. We saw last week how Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. We also saw last week that a multitude of the prophets of, of Asherah remained, even though the prophets of Baal were defeated on that day. And it's clear that the kings of Israel led the people in the worship of these idols. And the argument of 2 Kings 
17 still lays the blame of the exile at the foot of the people. This is important. There is a distinct moral and spiritual responsibility that the Lord lays at the feet of the people themselves. Make no mistake, if you read this, if you read the whole account, Jeroboam is called to account over and over and over again. But when the time of judgment comes, the responsibility lays at the feet of the people who walked in rebellion against the way of the worship of the Lord. And we see the sins of the people. They're specifically named. And in verse 7, in the second half of the verse, it says they feared other gods. Now, what's interesting is it says that this people, Israel, had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and yet they feared other gods. This is so important that the sin of the people is against the Lord, specifically against the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt. This people are not exiled for crimes against humanity. This people are not exiled because of some sin that's deeply interwoven in injustice toward one another. This people are exiled because they sinned against the Lord. And so when the Lord lays out the case for exile, he points to how he had first fashioned them as a people. And when he fashioned them as a people, he redeemed them out of Egypt. And when he redeemed them out of Egypt, he redeemed them out from among idolatry and into the worship of the one true God. So you can see while the nature of their sin was to rebel against the, the, the very thrust and purpose of redemption. They weren't redeemed out of Egypt because, you know, it was rough there and it only seemed right that they get rescued out from that rough place. Friends, there are lots of rough places in the world. There are lots of people who suffer in rough places in the world and it is tragic and it's horrific. But the purpose of redemption is not just to rescue out from a tragic, horrific circumstance, The purpose of redemption is to rescue to the Lord and his worship. They were to belong to him. And here they are practicing the customs of pagan peoples. This is why he brought them out. They were rescued from the fear of the gods who are no gods. They're rescued from disorder and the customs of the nations. And God who made them his people and revealed to them his own way in which they were to walk and worship is now being rejected now that they're established in the land. Why were the people under God's judgment? Because they rejected the way of the Lord. They rejected worship. He lists specifically what their sins are. Verse 7 in the second half, I already mentioned it. They feared other gods. They, they counted these false gods, these idols, as something. And the Lord counted these false gods, these idols, as Nothing. Do you see that? Does that resonate with anyone here? That we count things that are nothing as something to be feared. They feared other gods. And it says that they walked in the customs of the nations. The Lord had generously and comprehensively revealed the customs of heaven. If you imagine... One of, the, one of the, I think, great benefits of walking through this history of redemption is we sort of have a, a, a conception, an imagination of what God's law and his covenant is. Most of that conception, most of that imagination is because we're ignorant of it. Like we just never really read it or paid attention. We grabbed a couple fun little stories along the way and we carry those images with us, but we're by and large ignorant of what God is doing in the history of redemption. But when you begin to pay attention, what you see is the Lord is revealing a comprehensive framework of reality for the people who are called by his name. He's revealing heaven to them. And what do they do? They who have the very revelation of heaven and the images, the types 
in their midst, like the temple and the priesthood that give us an image of the true temple and the true high priest and the true sacrifice. What do they do? Well, they adopt the customs of the nations of the world. They walked in the customs of the kings of Israel, the passage says. This is a direct reference to the false worship established by Jeroboam and maintained by the kings that are after him. God reveals to them the way of heaven and they walk in the way of the world. Now, it's pretty rough, pretty harsh on Israel. No, real, it's not an overstatement. It's an understatement if you read the story. But Judah, just as bad. Verse 18, they don't come out unscathed in all of this. Therefore, in verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And the tribe of Judah is like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we were left. No, no. Verse, eight, verse 19, Judah also did not keep the commands of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. They were learning from their northern neighbors. Judah was faithful, right? I mean, they have Jerusalem. They have the very practices of heaven revealed in their midst. No. There are a few intermittent good kings that exercise a few brief moments of reform and repentance among the people. But they too, who had the temple and the priesthood, wander off guiltily after a variety of idolatries, all manner of sin of which Israel too was guilty. Listen, the Lord alone has the right to reveal the manner in which he will be worshiped. I'm gonna say that again. The Lord, and he's the Lord. And think about what the word is that we use for him. He's the Lord God. Being Lord and being God, he alone has a right to reveal the manner in which he is to be worshipped. So that means every novelty of worship and custom is not only suspect, every novelty of worship, every new custom is sin. It's that simple. We're not ignorant. We're not ignorant. We're stupid. We're rebellious. We're cruel and wayward. But we're not ignorant. We know. The Lord himself has actually spoken. He's revealed the way of heaven. So we're without excuse. We've been relieved, if you want to say it positively. We've been relieved of the burden, of the need to imagine for ourselves how to worship the Lord and live. We don't have to imagine the way of heaven. It's been revealed. Our conception of worship has been revealed to us. How in the world are we supposed to Approach the creator God. How would you do that, church? We don't have to wonder. It's not a mystery any longer. I could summarize what this portion of the argument has to say in this way. Creation was made for the Lord. Israel was called out for the Lord. So sin is against the Lord. He's the Lord. He alone reigns. And our business, if we are called to be his people, like Israel was called to be his people, our business is to follow him by faith. That's it. That's the business of the people. Follow him by faith, by worshiping him in the way that he's revealed. Not with great innovation, not with a a great need to exercise creativity, but rather a great need to exercise faith, trusting in the way that he's given for us to walk as his people. I'm reminded of of John 14. John 14, verses six and seven. It says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known the Father also. You see, that's revelation. The Father is revealing heaven in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. From now on, you do know him 
And you've seen him. We do know, and we have seen. We don't have to fashion another way to God. It has been revealed. And he is the way. We don't need to imagine a way for us to live. We don't need to, a con- to envision a conception of a society. Our business is faith. Our business is to trust him, to get to know what he said and, and then believe what he said. And if we walk in the way of the Lord that he has revealed by faith, we have what he's been revealing the whole time, which is life. Because he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. What we're told in this passage is that the people were provoking the Lord. Look at verse 11. They, were made, they made offerings in all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried on, uh, away before them, and they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. What's the meaning of God's anger toward Israel? Seems like God just sort of lost his patience one day, right? I mean, is that what anger is? You know, you kind of go along, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sick of it. <laughs> is that what happened? Is that the way that the Lord's anger works? Well, we're told in verses 12 and 13, they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the, all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. Now, this isn't a God who lost patience. This is a God who sent prophets. The Lord is not surprised by our failure to follow him. Do you believe that? Some of you are so hard on yourself. And one of the reasons, just one of the reasons you're hard on yourself is because you know yourself. And you know you're kind of messed up. And your, your assessment of your failure is not wrong. For some of you. For some of you, your assessment of your failure is wrong. You need to talk to somebody. So they can, that's why we need one another, right? We have a right assessment of ourselves and why we need the Lord. But as much as our assessment may be true, I'm, I'm more wicked than I think I am. My problem is my assessment of the Lord's knowledge of me. He knows that already. He's not surprised by that when he spoke the words from heaven. The Lord tells Moses in Exodus 34, 6, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Did he just not know Israel yet? (laughs) No, he knew them already. He'd already seen the way that they are. It's for this reason that he sends the prophets to warn the people and to call them to repentance. You know you. And you know you're a problem. And you know you have a problem. What you need to hear is the word of the prophets calling you to repentance. You see, what we do with our knowledge of ourselves, some of you do this. You're really hard on yourself. Not in your assessment. Your assessment hasn't even scratched the surface of how bad you are. But you hide in shame. As if you could hide it there. You could keep it quiet there. But that's not the message of the prophets. The message of the prophets, oh, shame on you. Shame, 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 shame on you. The message of the prophets is repent. Open, 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 open is your sin. Bring it before the Lord. Bring it to the temple by means of sacrifice. You who bring sacrifice before the temple, bring sacrifice before the temple because you're sinners and you know it. And the Lord knows it too. And he made provision, sinner. The anger of the Lord is not for a people's need for grace. It's at their failure to turn and walk in repentance, which is what his grace affords to you. Do you believe that? He says, turn from your evil ways. If you go back to verse nine, the people did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. The meaning of the word translated secretly is unclear. It's a, it's a relatively rare word in the scriptures. It, it seems quite possible that it means something like they did underhandedly or duplicitously. I think the most clear example of what this means 
is that they would set up two images of calves as a means for worship of the Lord. I mean, when, when Jeroboam established these two calves in Bethel and Dan, he wasn't like, you know, forget the God of Jerusalem. We're going to worship a new God. But rather, secretly or duplicitously, they established these idols to say, this is how we will worship the Lord. And that's a lie. It's duplicitous. It's underhanded. In reality, all that they're doing is they're pursuing pure and simple idolatry. That's it. We read last week how Elijah called the people to repentance. And there's a brief moment in which they turn, but they would quickly return again to the Baals and the idolatrous customs established by Jeroboam and the kings of Israel. They, They have a secret way, a duplicitous way. Again, we know our sin. The Lord knows it too. Do you try to like fool him? Secretly working with these alternative religious practices to show him and show more importantly for us, or more often for us to show others that we're actually right with God. No, Jerusalem, don't worry about us. We've got golden caps. Don't worry about us. We're good up here. And so the Lord was angry. He's provoked to anger in verse 11. They would not listen, stubborn as their fathers. And they, it says in verse 14, they did not believe in the Lord. It says in verse 15, they despised his statutes and covenants and warnings. I think that's an important moment in our text. They did not believe, believe, faith, same word, same concept. They did not believe, but despised. We have seen that this disobedience is not some sort of mere legal failure. It's not that the people failed to keep like all of the commandments, like they did so good and so many of them, and then they messed up a couple times. God got ticked off and just kicked them out because he's a God of anger and steadfast wrath. No, the disobedience is first a matter of faith. The sin that is in them is a worship issue. It was to despise the Lord and his way. They did not believe in the revelation of heaven, but they put their confidence in the way of kings and of the customs of the nations around them. I would remind us that God's covenant was not only blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. That would be a merely legalistic covenant. God's covenant was also a call to repent and return, a provision for redemption and reconciliation. There is a provision for us. The Lord saw the idolatry and the rebellion of the people, and they saw all that they did in his sight. It says it two times in our passage, two times, that what he did was in his sight. They often fooled themselves, saying, there is no God who sees and judges, as the psalmist says. We say the same thing today, we say, but we say it like this. Typically, we say it, judge not. Judge not. There's no judgment. This is a no-judgment zone. Friends, it's probably a a, a zone where you shouldn't judge. But there is no no judgment zone. The Lord sees. And he is the righteous judge. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He's very clear about this in his covenant. What we do, we do where we ought to be slow to judge because we know he sees. And we know he sees them, not just them, he sees us too. (laughs) And so we're slow to judge because there is a judge and he will judge. And the account we have this morning is of him judging. The Lord rejected and the Lord afflicted the people. Look at verses 18 and 23 of our chapter. Verse 18 says, The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them not from the land. He did do that. And it says that other places and other ways. It says he removed them out of his sight. There was none left of the tribe of Judah, but the tribe of Judah. Verse 23, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. The Lord is removing this people whose offense has taken place in full view of his glory. You think he didn't see from Jerusalem what was happening in Israel? He's removing them out from before him, the Lord, 
who had called Egypt to worship, called these people out of Egypt to be present with him, is now removing them from his sight. That is so harsh. It's so powerful of an image. I thought God was a covenant keeper. God exiles Israel precisely because he is a covenant keeper. He is a covenant keeper. In his covenant, the Lord promised to bless the people, but he also promised to curse them for disobedience. In Deuteronomy 28, we have that record. In beginning in verse 14, if they don't obey the voice of the Lord, careful to do his commandments and statutes, the curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Specifically, if you go down to verse 64 of chapter 28, it says that the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples. Isn't that what we read this morning? Isn't that what happened? Blessing is the promise of the covenant. And curse is the promise of the covenant. And then, as we read a number of weeks ago, Deuteronomy 30, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, as I promised, they would. You do them, I'll do this. The blessing and the curse, which I've set before you today, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven What we have before us in our passage today is the playing out of God's curse. In our passage today, the Lord drives out the people, and it's in exile that they will spend generations calling to mind the covenant of the Lord that they had enjoyed in the land. It's in the land of their exile. It's in the land of the consequence of their rebellion that God will do great works among the people of exile. And we'll establish a remembering in that place. And so much of what we see established by the time we see the birth of Jesus and the practices of the people there come out of this season of exile, I would suggest to you, just for your reflection, that the faith that is practiced by Jesus is a faith that is remembered by a people in their exile. Like literally the prayers that were prayed. The methods of worship came from a season of remembering God's covenant while they were in exile so that when they returned, Jesus and the people would again worship. Is there any hope for a people in exile? Yeah. The call to repentance remains. The call to remember remains. And the promise, not to call to hope, of redemption, the promise of the hope of redemption remains. I have two applications for us this morning, perhaps three. The first is a warning regarding idolatry and rationalization. Jeroboam established idolatry as the official manner of the worship of the people of Israel, all right? Why did he do that? And then the people, they went along with him because it fit their desire to break off from Judah and establish a kingdom for themselves. There are two parts to the idolatrous worship in the northern kingdom. There's the king that establishes and maintains this false worship to establish and maintain a foothold for his power. So he rationalizes the creation of idolatry and syncretism with Baal and Asherah so they can have his kingdom. But there's a second part, the people. We have a people who are very happy to be deceived because this gives them an opportunity to pursue their own desires apart from what God has revealed. They get to be a northern kingdom. How cool is that to not be under the thumb of big government in Jerusalem? How cool would that be? Not to have to make the trip all the way to Jerusalem year after year. They were very happy to go along with Jeroboam because they got a kingdom out of it. It's not reasonableness. It's faithlessness that drives our idolatry. This is the rationalization of our own sinful desires in opposition to the way that God has revealed that he is to be worshiped. And friends, there is such a pull within us. Rationalizing false worship 
is little more than manipulation by those who have power to retain power. And the rationalization of false worship is the, is, is the pursuit of self and our own desires as people. We're not immune. The Lord has revealed so much to us in his word, revealing the way of worship of hev- in heaven that we might worship the God of heaven on earth. And that's the beauty of redemption. It's God's purpose. Worship in the temple tells us almost everything that we need to know about how to approach, approach the Lord. Hebrews holds out Jesus as our high priest who brings us to God and as the perfect sacrifice by which we are atoned for. How are you worshiping this morning? How do you come? Do you come on your own account? Do you gather in your own name? Are you looking for a leader to establish himself as a great pastor and and a great godly man that you might come in his name? Or do we come in the name of the Lord alone? Do you come by means of your sacrifice? Do you come with a great offering to make? Have you managed to be righteous for like three days in a row, you think? And you come by means of your own righteousness. We're told that worship is not in any of these things. It's in Christ our high priest and through his sacrifice alone that we may approach the holy God. Not one time in all of history, apart from Adam and Eve in perfection prior to the rebellion, has anyone ever approached God except through sacrifice. And you won't today. And that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. We're told to worship with reverence and awe. We're told to worship with joy and celebration. We're told to worship in a manner that remembers the Lord and his covenant. And so we come not as a people who have chosen to meet, but because the Lord has called his people to gather. We don't gather because it's convenient for us, like because the 10 o'clock slot worked for me, right? We gather to remember the cross and his resurrection because, man, that's the only slot we got. We worship, not, we worship not merely on our own. We, we worship as a gathered people, a congregation of those who are called out by his name. A, a worship that persists on its own will end there, on its own, because God is gathering a people to himself. And the gathering for worship images this to us. The gathering of heaven is a gathering of a people. And so the gathering that we make on earth is in light of that great gathering. We gather as a redeemed people. And so we approach by means of word and confession. We're we're a people who are blessed, though we deserve curse. And so we're glad to go to confession. You're like, I deserve curse, but I can say these things to you quietly in prayer and privately among the brothers and sisters in right places because I I don't get curse. I get repentance and grace. And we cling to the Lord by faith. We don't gather to make much of ourselves. So our songs and our words glorify the Lord, not our emotional sensibilities. Have you ever thought, I wish we sang songs like this because I enjoy that on the radio. One of the most shocking things, I remember the first time I told someone this, uh, to hear that, they were offering a complaint about the songs that we sing. And, and I said, did you know that I wouldn't sing half the songs we sing if I had my druthers? And I wouldn't sing with the instruments that we sing them with. Man, if it was just me and my sensibilities, I won't tell you what it is. But I can tell you it's not this. But it's not about me and my sensibilities. It's about the Lord and his glory. And it's about the fact that what we sing and what we remember together calls me to remember heaven and not myself. And glorify the Lord and not ourselves. And so we prioritize the words of Scripture. The methods of worship are to trust in the Spirit of God in our midst, not emotional manipulation, fog and lights, and whatever other thing we might put together. The Lord gave us his word, and so we give sustained attention to the reading of the word and the preaching of the word. And the Lord gave us his supper, and so we celebrate and remember with thanksgiving. The Lord is good, and he's been gracious and merciful to us. And that shapes the manner of our gathering. And friends, let me suggest to you, we do not do it right. 
That's why in the partner vision night, there was a vision that was cast that we need to mature. We're just little kids, just little children that need to grow up in the worship. We are not heavenly, but the heavenly one has come down and he has taught us. We need to learn and we need to grow up. Friends, there's so much to apply to us in in this and I just call us to an ongoing reflection that so many of the ways of worship in our contemporary culture have are the product of failed leadership. So much that we see that that sort of gets to go on it's not just TV, but like on YouTube and 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 and, and on blog articles about what worship should look like is actually the product of a failed leader trying to hold on to a people that he managed to gather one time. Just like Jeroboam. It's the same stuff. And man, if you think that that's not in me, you don't know me yet. We all got that. And when we think we got something, we want to keep it for ourselves. But not only that, as I look at contemporary cultural Christianity, I see people who seem to be quite pleased with these leaders that are using them for their own celebrity. I see a people who seem to be quite pleased with pragmatism, entertainment, and consumerism. Those are worthy of note and to examine yourself in what way is worship gathered not by the revelation of heaven, but by pragmatism, entertainment, and consumerism. These are the ways of man. These are the ways of the the customs of the people around us. These are not the ways of heaven. But there's more than that. We can also prioritize our jobs, our sports, our families over gathered worship. You know that. I know that. I know that pool. I can prioritize my sleep and entertainment over the worship of God in my household. You know what it is to prioritize all manners of customs of the peoples around us over the ways of the Lord that he's revealed. We do well to ask ourselves, how might we be influenced by the idolatry of Jeroboam? How might it be said of us? Second challenge. Idolatry and materialism. Materialism is the conception of the world that gives little heed to the reality that we live our lives in the sight of God. I mean, isn't that the whole thing? The people were supposed to live with Jerusalem as their center, where the Lord resides and where the Lord sees and the people gather. But they, they fled that center. And they seek to live their lives outside of the sight of God as and reject the fact that we are creatures with a spiritual nature. Do you know that? Or does materialism in you highlight the world and the cares of the moment? I would offer to you that when the scriptures say you shall not make for yourself a carved image, it is an argument against materialism. It's not an argument against the reality of the world, the created world that God made good. It's an argument against materialism because the people were trying to take the things of heaven and give them something material to consume, something that they could make and something that they could consume. Idols are necessarily materialistic. Baal with all of its promises for the fields and Asherah with all its promises for the womb. Why did they go after Baal and Asherah? Because they wanted good crops and lots of kids. It's just materialism. It's just today we want like iPhones and big houses. And let me suggest to you that's worse. It's, it's not only idolatry, it's gross. We would sacrifice our children and our crops for big homes and iPhones. How does materialism? It's just a a modern pursuit of idolatry. What do you want? I would argue that idolatry in our moment is much the same as Jeroboam in Israel. We are often seeking a kingdom for ourselves, and when we get it, we build idols to keep it. And we use rationalizations so that we can keep the world and friends, lose our souls, lose our souls. I can't close there. We have a steadfast love and mercy of our God's covenant. It's it's not really in here, (laughs) but it's in the story. 
It's in the history. It's in the story that's being told. We have Deuteronomy 30 that we see being played out, and we'll see it. We're going to turn to the prophets, and we're going to see the rest of the story that the Lord will circumcise their hearts and the heart of their offspring so that they will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What is the Lord holding out for us? I think he's holding out a warning so that today we might actually live in the presence of the holy God. I would take us to John chapter 13 to close. John 13, verse one. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, that's a bit euphemistic. The time had come for him to be brutally executed, bleed out, and suffocate on a cross as a sacrifice for sin. Having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Do you want to know what steadfast love is? It's that. That is steadfast love and mercy. We have a redeemer who has loved us to the very end, to the uttermost. That's the love that remains. Steadfast love is a love that endures. And even with all this talk of idolatry and materialism and rebellion. I don't want you to go home in shame. I want you to be called out into the light of steadfast love and mercy. I'm just calling that, that idolatry out into the light, that's all. It's there. It's there in me and it's there in you. Bring it to the one of steadfast love and mercy for your soul. That you would not be righteous, not that you would have the great hope of being cleaned, but that you might be a worshiper, that you could live out your days and your eternity in the very sight of God. Heavenly Father, this is our hope, your steadfast love and mercy on us. We need you. Thank you for this powerful, horrific warning May we not be like Jeroboam and the people. We are, apart from grace. So Lord, make your grace to shine, shine in the dark places. May we no longer hide, but openly repent and believe and walk as a people, not of self-righteousness, but of faith. Lord, forgive sin, call into confession, Transform lives, reveal hidden things that we do secretly and duplicitously and bring us up to maturity in Christ. We have this hope that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, bring us to maturity, bring us to completion. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ and by your spirit and word, amen.